This episode of Insights is brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca. Welcome to this edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Well, David, I had a very interesting conversation with Savay Charlebois. Uh, some people will know him as the food professor. <laughs> he's on the faculty management at Dalhousie, and he's the senior director of their agri-food analytics lab. And if anybody knows about the food sector in Canada, it would be Sylvain. We had a very wide-ranging conversation about uh, about the sector, a sector, by the way, that I don't know a whole lot about. I don't I don't know about you, and I and I, and I expect very few people know how important the agriculture food sector is in Canada. It's big. I was looking at some broad national data. One out of nine Canadians, you know, have something to do with food in this country. Of course they would. I mean, it's a big, it's a big deal. We need food every day. So it's maybe not surprising. But one of the things that Sylvain mentioned that, and I think he was really referring to primary agriculture and maybe the food processing side of things. There, there's somewhere between 25 and 27,000 Atlantic Canadians working in this sector in those, uh, in, in those kinds of jobs. So very important to this region. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry I missed that conversation. The, the, I'm a big fan of the agriculture sector. I think there's real opportunity. We produce a lot now. We're a, a world leader in low bush blueberries in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. We have cranberries. We do a lot with apples, uh, you know, if you think about maple syrup as a related project product. And then, of course, there's potatoes. Uh, PEI leads the country in the production of potatoes, and New Brunswick is not far behind. So we do have, we're, we have our strength in this region, uh, and I do think there's a lot of opportunity uh, to develop more agricultural opportunity in the future, but we've got all the same challenges, done that we have in other sectors. We need a workforce for that industry. We need to focus you know, we need our governments to decide, you know, where, where, where we should make uh, the priorities. But I do think there's lots of opportunity moving forward. Yeah, and one of the problems in this sector, and this is one of the reasons why the analytics lab actually exists, is to, to try to get good data. The data is not easy to find. Uh, so when I was looking for some background on this uh, conversation, tried to find out kind of what the numbers were for Atlantic Canada, I'm not really sure. I think that it, it's probably north of $2 billion uh, on the primary agricultural side. And, uh, and, the big, and the big numbers are related to dairy, which is around $400 million, and potatoes, as you mentioned, another $400 million. And so there are other products, as you mentioned, that are important, uh, fruit uh, uh, especially. And we did have a conversation about where the opportunity was in Atlantic Canada. And Sylvain, as uh, you'll hear in that conversation, uh, was really focused on the processing of food as, the, as an opportunity. And of course, that's the big challenge for Canada. We need to do more processing of the, of the, of the stuff that we grow or you know, cut or whatever. And uh, so uh, there, there's, a, there's an opportunity in that area. Yeah, I think he's right. I, I do... Um... Um, think that one of our big challenges related to that is the fact that we import hundreds of millions of dollars in food product every year from across Canada and around the world. So if we could chop off even a small portion of that and have it produced locally here 
in Atlantic Canada that would create a significant economic uh, activity and also a little more self-sufficiency in the area of, of agriculture. So there's real opportunity. Now, the challenge, of course, Don, is the trade-off. You know, if it's, if it's more expensive to produce, to serve a local market, uh, versus importing cheap, uh, I don't know, cheap bananas from Costa Rica. Uh, so we have to think about those two things. But I think in general, the idea of um, of, of, of lo- putting a bullseye on those hundreds of millions of dollars every year in imported meat and dairy and uh, fruit and vegetable products and saying, where can we uh, find opportunities to produce locally? Uh, I think there, that we should be uh, trying to pursue that. Well, there was a, a Nova Scotia company, you probably heard of this, uh, New Leaf, I think it's called, uh, that started in Truro, uh, but they ended up relocating, I believe, uh, to Guelph, if I'm not mistaken. They're hoping that they can provide Loblaws or the large food chains with lettuce year round. And I guess if you get to a certain size of scale, David, it probably is competitive. But with the supply chain issues that we saw um, sort of hampered by the truck um, convoy, you know, th- th- there are some opportunities and, and why not in Atlantic Canada? Why couldn't we become a, a you know, a, a, a national supplier of some kind of homegrown food stuff? Expensive, but it's got to be scaled, obviously. Absolutely. And we are seeing uh, um, uh, some uh, growth in the area of greenhouses, which allows us to provide fresh agricultural products year round. The challenge we have is our energy costs are higher than compared to a province like Quebec, which has very cheap hydro. Uh, But in general, that's one way to look at year round agriculture is to try to take advantage of this trend to use uh, greenhouses with with solar panels or other other forms of energy to kind of try to keep those costs down. Yeah. And I just want to kind of, uh, for our listeners, talk a little bit about the overall scope of the agri-food sector. It's enormous. Uh, As I mentioned, one out of nine jobs in Canada is related to food in some fashion. There are kind of four categories uh, of agri-food in Canada. There's primary agriculture, of course, the people that you know, our farming to produce uh, the goods. There's the food and beverage processing side. There's the food retail and wholesale side. And then there's the food service, restaurants, those sort of things. Um, you know, it looks like it's $120 billion of GDP activity employing over 2 million Canadians. And, you know, again, as I said earlier, a very much underappreciated sector um, I think we need to do a better job generally understanding and, and really promoting this sector in this region, don't you? I really do. And I think your your conversation with Sylvain is a good place to start that conversation. Yeah. So let's listen to what the food professor has to say. Sylvain, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Don. Yeah, you've uh, you've developed quite a reputation in a, quite a short period of time, Sylvain, uh, in the food uh, sector. Uh, let's start by finding out a little about your background be, be, before you became known as the food professor, perhaps by maybe <laughs> des- describing your journey uh, before coming to Dalhousie University. Yes. So I, I, I've been at this for 25 years now. Uh, I started my career in Saskatchewan. Uh, so it's been a while. And really, my career took off then uh, and uh, was recruited by Guelph uh, after so joined Guelph uh, for maybe seven, eight years, started the Food Institute there, and, and my career just took off really uh, nationally. 
But for some reason in the Atlantic, uh, my name wasn't really getting there until I got there uh, in 2016. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, like I felt, um, I, I, I felt welcome uh, by the community, uh, generally speaking. And I felt that my work or our work as a lab was, uh, was valued uh, and appreciated. And so uh, what, what we created uh, in, uh, in Halifax at Dal is similar to what Guelph has with the Food Institute. It's called the Harold Food Institute now. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's, it's to create a lab to service the economy, to support research, but also mostly to help governments, policy, and businesses as well. So you may have noticed, Don, that over the last several years, we've come out with a lot of different reports. Uh, and frankly, there's a huge data deficit in agri-food in Canada, generally speaking. Nobody really knows what's going on. And I know you're a big uh, fan of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was missing in agri-food. There was nothing really other than StatsCan and, and Nelson IQ, uh, for which you have to pay a lot of money. Uh, we wanted to democratize data as much as possible. And so we felt that we've been somewhat successful in doing so, and we'll continue to uh, to generate more reports with with partners like uh, Angus Reed, for example, Leger Leger, uh, Cattle as well. Uh, these these organizations have been super supportive of our work, and we're very appreciative. Yeah. So uh, you know, you mentioned the creation of the Agri Food Lab at Dell. When was that actually created? Wasn't a few years ago? Wasn't well. It? I mean, I, I officially was created in 2018, but uh, it was always there. Really, we okay. we ju- we did some work. There was a team there. Uh, we just made it official in 2018 with uh, with a partnership between three faculties: so management, agriculture, uh, and computer science. And the computer science piece, I think, is a big one because uh, with forecasting. Uh, hmm. I, I, I'm not a computer scientist myself, but, uh, I've, uh, I've, I was lucky enough to meet some incredible computer scientists at Dell, uh, which made me fall in love with machine learning. <laughs> it's, right. it's, it's a powerful tool to forecast. And, and frankly, this is what we use for Canada's food price report. Uh, we publish every December along with Guelph, uh, the University of Saskatchewan and the University of British Columbia. Uh, all four campuses will either use econometrics or machine learning, and it's been working very well for us. Well, you know, that tells us kind of how, when it was formed, and, and we have an idea about its focus. But tell me why the agri-food lab, uh, lab is important to Atlantic Canada. Well, so, I mean, just by working with different groups, uh, you can tell that people are just uh, uh, thirsty for information i mean basically uh, even with government uh since the start of the pandemic we've had the pleasure to work with uh with uh, three provinces of the four so pei um, nova scotia obviously and uh, and new brunswick as well new brunswick was the project was about food security and food autonomy producing more food uh only three percent of produce consumed in new brunswick is produced in new brunswick and when you look at Nova Scotia, 94% of all the food consumed in Nova Scotia is imported from elsewhere, from outside the region. So you, you definitely have a food security issue in the region. And PI as well, we've done some work with them. 
Uh, and PI, it to me is a wonderful case study for Canada uh, with with Canada's food island. That strategy there is really working well for the island, and I just wish we could replicate that for the entire region. To be honest, so really for the region for the atlantic uh, we've been able to support government and some businesses in terms of better understanding we've actually had the pleasure to to talk recently to to investors from quebec uh and, and they were all looking at the atlantic as a really good place to invest but they just didn't know uh how to analyze the region where to see the opportunities so i was asked to basically by an association to just uh, brief investors in terms of what are what what the opportunities are in the region. Yeah, I, I know from my own research that it's really hard to get you know consistent data to do comparative <laughs> stuff. Absolutely, the provinces that it's a big challenge. So uh, look, you know, and and the agriculture sector really does get very little attention in our region. Obviously, it just it's it's an afterthought for many people. But maybe can you know based on your own information, how big is the agricultural sector? in each of the four provinces in terms of maybe GDP and maybe the jobs generated by the sector. Do you have that information? Yeah, a little. Yeah. So, uh, so based on our estimates, uh, the agri-food sector, okay. Uh, will, uh, employs maybe 25 to 27,000 people in the region. Okay. Mm. Uh, exports are about six to $7 billion. Uh, so, but a lot of these jobs are at farm gates. So mm. in farming and, and often uh, when I talk to people in the region, they often think of agri-food as farming. And, and to me, it's, 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 that's just the beginning <laughs> Yeah. when you, cause you have to look at the entire supply chain and that's something uh, I know you advocate a lot for data. You advocate for uh, economic growth, economic development. I advocate for supply chains value chains because often in and not just it's not just in the atlantic by the way it's it's mm. a, it's across the country don when you go to ag canada they always think about agriculture they think about farming and and slowly now and especially as in light of what happened with the pandemic we're starting to think more about processing distribution exports um and that's what the barton report basically uh told us a few years ago we there's so much potential uh not only in atlanta but across the country to grow the economy by fostering uh fostering this this mentality of of growing processing uh across the country that's where the innovation actually will happen and I think uh, the biggest challenge we have in the Atlantic in particular is, is processing. I mean, increasing processing capacity should be the number one priority for all four provinces. Uh, to grow things is uh, challenging enough. Well, what's more challenging is to support farmers appropriately and also to uh, provide some support uh, for for some of our government's ambitions to get people to eat more local. Uh, we just heard from the Houston government that uh, it wants uh, Nova Scotians to eat more local, which is great. Um, but you can't do it without processing. You can't do it uh, without thinking about uh, the entire supply chain from farm to store. Uh, 
if you don't, and that's why you need to work with Sobeys, you need to work with Loblaws, you need to work with Cisco and, and, and GFS and all these companies that really will make a difference. You need to partner with them. You need to work with them, understanding exactly what will move the needle when it comes to growing the economy uh, by, by, by growing the agri-food sector. Yeah, just as an aside, I was part of a, a group uh, talking about the uh, the, the planned uh, uh, new campaign for Dalhousie the fundraising campaign over the next almost decade, I guess. And I, I know, uh, you know, one of the four priorities is for food security. So I guess your yep. future is pretty much secure, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm. I was happy when I learned that. I was very happy because I think it is. Uh, it is an important issue, obviously. But as you said earlier, Don, I mean, it's it's been um, either on underappreciated or the the because when you go to the valley, for example, the things that are mm. going there is incredible. I mean, it's yeah. you got some farmers doing some great work, but a lot of that work is for exports. It's not for mm. our region, and it's not necessarily, uh, I would say, from a from a from a scalability perspective it's not strategic we're not thinking because we're at the mercy of the sobeys and the loblaws and everyone else and and in our region we haven't really embraced uh the strategic view of of vertical integration uh we, right. we haven't quebec has ontario is doing it now you're seeing a lot of action in the prairies with uh, protein industries canada you saw nestle merit foods uh, Rocket, Lovingly, they've all invested in the region in processing. Mm. And we need something like that. We need a magnet in our region, some sort of super cluster, like what we're doing, we're seeing with the Ocean Institute, uh, Ocean Frontier Institute. We, we need to think about something like this for, for the agri-food sector in our region, I think. Yeah, there's a couple of good local uh, examples of an integrated uh sort of chain. If you look at the Irvings in their, uh, you know, their uh, Cavendish farms and processing and they have the trucking, they've got, they have the, the whole thing, right? Uh, yeah. Same thing with Oxford Foods on the blueberry side, I suppose, as well. They're, they're, we have some good local examples of processing and, and distribution as part of not just production, but the, the, the whole the whole. Change. I think I think you're right, Don. I mean, uh, I actually had the pleasure to talk to Peter, Potato Grows in Woodstock, New Brunswick, just before the pandemic. Uh, mm. And I got to tell you, I mean, the potato industry is pretty well run. I mean, because mm. in the room, so I had, I don't know, probably 200 potato growers, but McDonald's was in the room. McCain's was in the room. Like everyone was in the room and they were talking to each other. And they were sharing information together, understanding where the market was going or where it could go, and that's how you get to more innovation. And uh, and to your to your to your example about blueberries, same thing. I think that I, there's a lot of innovation happening in blueberries for sure. But again, at retail in distribution, it's always a tough nut to crack. I mean, to get really yeah. to get Loblaws and Sobeys to really focus on your product is is tough to do and and i'm sure that oxford will actually tell you that again just as an aside because uh, uh, a lot of people uh, don't know this um i was on the board of a local company for a number of years that was so previously called polycello uh, they're a company with a plant in um a head a head office in amherst nova scotia they have a plant in uh 
in Ontario as well. They do all the packaging for McCain's and uh, French fries. And um, I think they, they do uh, Cavendish as well. So even the packaging <laughs> is, is for some of these products, uh, you know, is done locally already. So that, you know, that's a good signal, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's lots, I think there's so much potential. Uh, we could double our exports because the, the, the one thing that, that we have to keep in mind is that we have a very small population in the Atlantic. Mm. And, and I think this is something that, that, that I'm seeing out of Ontario and Quebec right now, when it comes to food autonomy, mm. uh, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, feeding our own, growing our own stuff, feeding ourselves. It's great, but you can't do it if, efficiently if you only focus on the small market you have to think about trades you have to think about uh external market and being in the atlantic close to europe close to the us i mean there's so much potential and we can go we can do different things with different commodities uh the wine industry in nova scotia to me is a miracle (laughs) because you've seen really a sector uh blossom Despite all the interprovincial trade barriers we have, can you imagine if we didn't have those barriers? That 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 valley would explode because there's something unique going on there. Yeah. Now, looking at Atlantic Canada as a whole, uh, what products make up the greatest share of the food sector in our region? Well, it's uh, so essentially uh, there's it's fish and seafood. Lobster is a big one, obviously. You got blueberries, potatoes. Uh, those are big ones as well. So those would be the top commodities we produce in our region. Uh, livestock is not a big piece of, of, of the action. But going back to the PI example, I mean, PI, they grow everything. Uh, now, most of their production is not scalable, but they, they grow a lot of stuff they produce a lot of stuff they 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 grow lentils they grow livestock and they and they do it well and what comes out of the island is of great quality you go to toronto okay to italy which is a food hall they just opened up just before the pandemic and if you go to italy which is a very busy place in place the the beef you'll get is from the island in downtown toronto okay it doesn't happen by accident you need marketing and you need good skills at at farm gate and and i think there's a lot of that we can do in the atlantic this is just one example yeah i was looking at some numbers on dairy uh dairy is still a pretty significant part of the um industry down here i think somewhere between 300 and 400 million dollars based on the numbers i saw they may not be current but that's what i saw but it brings me to the topic of milk prices in canada which recently took a a hike um you know we have what is known as a supply side uh management system when it comes to milk production in this country uh, can you describe how that system works and the advantages and disadvantages of this system for canadian consumers yeah so if you want to really uh, talk about the big elephant in the room for our region, that's the one, supply mm. management. Uh, yeah. and, I, and let's focus on dairy because uh, with poultry and eggs, I actually think those sectors are quite competitive. Uh, the quota system is actually has helped those sectors, and they're important sectors in our region, obviously, and, and sure. they've, they've helped the sector become more vertically in- integrated and coordinated as well. 
And so, so I'm not going to touch eggs and poultry, but let's, let's focus on dairy specifically there's cause there's lots of issues there. And just to give you an example, Don of Nova Scotia. So back in 1980, the region had, or the province had 850 dairy farms. Okay. And four processing plants. Now we're down to about 200 dairy farms and we've lost three processing plants. Wow. So a lot of the milk is actually trucked outside the province. In New Brunswick, they're basically losing two to three dairy farms a month, okay? Despite mm. supply management, despite a government-sanctioned quota system, which protects the family farm. So you can see that really the model is not working well. And from a retail perspective, uh, to your question about consumers, are consumers well-served with supply management? Well, to, to a certain extent, I think they are because they it, it does provide uh, stable prices at retail. Uh, I'm I'm in Florida right now. I can see that really the price of milk can fluctuate greatly from one week to another. It's not what you see in Canada. Canada's prices are much more stable, but they're generally more expensive. Uh, and uh, and but the other, uh, I think the. The biggest challenge when it comes to supply management is the lack of innovation. Because uh, you see, the, 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 the philosophy of supply management is to reward everybody equally. So you, you get, right. so the, the Cane Dairy Commission will calculate how much it costs to produce milk. And each board, so in, in, in the Atlantic, we have, uh, we have boards for each province. And they will set a fair price for 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 farmers. There there is no incentive to innovate. There is no incentive to think strategically about the market. There's there's none of that, and that's what's missing, I think. So right now, I hate to say this, but we're looking at a sector that is managing a, a declining scenario. That's basically, and that's going to continue on. So our forecast. For the dairy sector is simply this. If we continue on our current path, we will lose half of our farms, dairy farms, by 2030. And the big question for the Atlantic is, is about land occupancy. We all know, Don, that mm -hmm. our urban centers are doing very well economically. Like Halifax is a good example. Halifax is doing very well. You drive out. 30 minutes outside Halifax, you start to see poverty. You, you start to see really rural communities that are struggling. And we need to think about how to occupy that land, how to really grow that economy outside urban centers. And, and, I, I, and I am hoping that governments will start thinking more seriously about that. Yeah, so, you know, supply management obviously has its upsides and downsides, as they would say. I guess one of the problems is the lack of scale efficiencies because a lot of smaller farmers, um, um, they don't have the scale to be more efficient in the production. At least that's the Canadian model, generally speaking. And week. if you go east, and, and what's typical, what's, what's unusual with the Atlantic mm -hmm. is that, I mean, the dairy sector in Canada is pretty simple. You have Toronto. Mm -hmm. You have west of Toronto and east of Toronto. West of Toronto, farms are bigger, and the focus is on quotas. East of Toronto, so eastern Ontario, Quebec, and the Atlantic, it's all about fair pricing. 
And if you if you look at the size of a typical farm, okay, in the mm. Atlantic, it's 80 cows, 85 cows. Right. West of Toronto, it's more than 160. It's double. Okay. Right. Look at the retail price of milk in the Atlantic. Okay. Yeah. It's 30 to 35 percent more. Right. So you can see that really there's a huge impact. The architecture of the industry has a huge impact on retail. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good example. Thank you for that. Mm. Uh, looking at the opportunities for food production in this region, what do you see as the best opportunities to increase the economic contribution of this sector? I, I'm going to beat on, my, uh, on that food processing drum. I think it's right. really uh, food processing. And I think it's super important. Why? Because if you're not in control of processing, you're not in control of much of anything. You're at the mercy of a currency. You're at the mercy of climate change. You're at the mercy. Look, as soon as you start importing, exporting more stuff uh, from abroad, mm -hmm. like finished goods, I mean, uh, and we saw that with the Ambassador Bridge recently in Windsor, 25% mm -hmm. of all finished goods in food go over that bridge every single year. And you started to see in the GTA and Quebec some, some empty shells because there was nothing going in. And so if you're at the mercy of, 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 of that, if you don't control processing domestically, it, everything becomes more difficult. And, and I think like in our region, we have, like when you think about it, you have water, clean water, you have cheap space, cheap land still. I mean, mm -hmm. outside of Halifax, I mean, uh, so there's lots of opportunities to bring more uh, innovation innovation new brunswick was was i think was clever in focusing on cannabis for a while but there was a bit of a bubble but i think i think new brunswick really um uh is his heart was in the right place i think it saw an opportunity with cannabis but there are other opportunities in agri-food for sure uh mm -hmm. i mean if you can think if you can think of of livestock right now when you look at proteins in particular uh, as you know, uh, pulses are a huge focus for, for plant-based products. And I would go even further uh, in the future with cell-based agriculture, um, mm. lab-grown meat. Yes, Don, it is a thing. Just in Canada, we have 13 <laughs> startups. Yeah, I know. It's, it sounds ridiculous, but <laughs> right now I'm actually on a board of a, of a startup uh, called Whiteboard Foods in Ottawa. And, and they're actually doing it. And they're mm -hmm. attracting millions of dollars from VCs. Why? And all of these VCs aren't in agriculture. They're mm -hmm. looking at food very differently. So we have 13 startups in Canada right now looking at cell-based agriculture, hmm. 179 around the world, and they're all looking at Asia. They're all looking at uh, the Middle East, and they're looking at Europe as well. And you can produce more proteins with, with less resources compared to other traditional uh sources of protein. Now I'm not, I'm not telling you that where beef is out and pork is out. Absolutely. That's not what I'm saying. Cause I think there's going to be, <laughs> there's always going to be, I mean, I'm going to continue to eat chicken, pork and beef, but yeah. more and more like Singapore just to prove cell-based um, lab grown chicken. Why? Because they want to produce more proteins with no land. So labs are their farm. So in Canada, it doesn't make sense to think about cell-based agriculture, but when you, as an investor, uh, 
as a as a business proposition, I think Asia has a lot of opportunities, and China just included in its policy, food policy over the next five years, cell based agriculture. So there's lots of opportunities outside of Canada. Well, you know that's a great segue to my next topic. I, you know, there's been um, you know a, a bit of uh, news recently about genetically modified foods, and obviously there are concerns about genetically modified foods. Can you outline what those concerns are and, and, and how those concerns need to be addressed? So thanks. Yeah. So genetic engineering in, uh, in food uh, has, been, uh, has been an issue for well over uh, two decades. Uh, it really started in 1994 when crops were uh, being grown in Canada for the first time. It was, it was really not on the radar for most people until all of a sudden people start to realize, well, there are genetically modified crops in Canada and other parts of the world. It's included in basically 75% of all the food we find in a grocery store. There's a, there's a genetically modified ingredient. As you know, uh, Aqua Bounty's salmon is being sold everywhere without being labeled. Uh, it's a genetically modified uh, livestock for the first time, we actually have an animal being genetically modified, but there's no labeling linked to that. So there's, there's, there's that mystery is really fostering that Franken food sort of mentality, giving more ammunition to interest groups. But I actually do think that there's great opportunities and, and, and right now, uh, lobby groups, I think lobby groups have actually failed to scare people with genetically, well, genetic engineering, but they're being successful with the use of pesticides. Uh, mm. Pesticides are scaring people. Uh, municipalities are moving against pesticides more and more because, I mean, what's at stake? A green lawn, really? It's not, it's not a big deal. But in agriculture, the use of pesticides is a big deal. It's about yields. It's about, it's about productivity. And so farmers are very concerned about what's going on uh, with the politicization of, of the use of pesticides. I think it's going, it's going to last a while, but it will eventually disappear. The next frontier is gene editing. Gene editing right now is being considered by Health Canada. My guess is that over the next few weeks, we'll hear from Health Canada and it will consider gene editing as not novel. Uh, in other words, you wouldn't actually have to get approval from Health Canada. It wouldn't be considered as a genetically modified crop. And gene editing, to me, is would be a great uh, step forward because it will allow agriculture to, you know, to deal with irrigation issues, to deal with uh, climate change, to deal with all the things that we've we've been seeing in the Atlantic and elsewhere you know, early frost and all the things that have destroyed crops over and over again, if you can actually edit the genes of plants, uh, that would actually empower agriculture in our region immensely. So I'm just hoping Health Canada will agree with that. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah. But, uh, in your opinion, are those responsible for ensuring food safety in Canada doing a good enough job protecting consumers or is there more that needs to be done? Food safety to me is, uh, so often people ask me, what, what is food security? Well, food security can be defined in many different ways, but I define it uh, by looking at three pillars. One pillar is uh, access. 
So you need to have access to food. So production, processing, and we've been talking about this. Two is affordability. Uh, there's no use. I mean, you need to make sure that your food is actually affordable mm -hmm. to the population that you're trying to serve. The third pillar is safety. Uh, and, and I, 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 I can tell you, Don, that from a food safety perspective, Canada is uh, one of the leading countries in the world or the leading country in the world. Mm. Um, and I'm, it's not me saying that. It's The Economist. The Economist actually has a global food security index. If you look it up, and they actually rank countries based on affordability, access, and safety. So on affordability, Canada currently ranks 24th. On access, we're third in the world. And on safety, we're first in the world. Mm. Yeah, and we've done some benchmarking ourselves as a lab. And, and Canada always ranks as a, as a top-tier country compared to other countries. I would say that from a food safety perspective, some of the countries that have done a pretty good job uh, over the last, say, two decades would be the Netherlands and Denmark. I would maybe put them ahead of Canada, uh, but they're a smaller country. So traceability is much easier. Right. Uh, so to surveil food fraud and those kinds of things is much easier for them. But overall, Canada, I, I, I don't think Canadians should be concerned about, uh, and I'm always, I always get phone calls about, about inspectors and are we expecting enough? Are we, are we surveilling companies enough? Are companies in Canada out there to poison Canadians? I always laugh at that because when you look at the data, Canada is a high-performing country when it comes to food safety. Well, you know what? That's great, really reassuring. I think for for us, uh, for sure. Uh, I just yeah. want to. Well, we've had our disasters, of course. Oh, uh, yeah, we've okay. had the, the maple leaf uh, incident in yeah, two thousand and eight, so and Excel Foods in two thousand and twelve. But we've learned from those incidences. Yeah, uh, I, I want to talk about aquaculture for a second. It's becoming an important. Uh, sector in our region, both as a food source as, uh, and, and as a contributor to economic growth. It's controversial, obviously, has been, will be for a while, I'm sure, uh, particularly with re uh, related to concerns about uh, disease, environmental contamination, and the unintended genetically mixing with wild stocks. What are your concerns about the agricultural industry and what do you believe needs to be done to make this industry more environmentally sustainable and acceptable to the general population? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And so first of all, uh, I'll, I'll disclose uh, the fact that I believe that farmers are one of the best environmental stewards we have. I mean, they make money by taking care of the environment. Mm. <laughs> Mm. I mean, that's, let's face it. Now, the science to support farmers is, uh, as you know, Don, I mean, science is not an absolute. We, mm. we evolve. I mean, we learn every day about the environment and the environment is changing. So uh, farmers, uh, you know, sometimes uh, have a hard time coping with these changes, environmental changes. And, uh, mm. and, and I, 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 I see that. Why? Because, well, they're risk takers. Why would they invest more in their operations when they don't, when they, when they don't know for sure they'll make more money? Uh, other Outside of supply management, I mean. I mean, there are many, many entrepreneurs out there in farming that really can't take the risk. So governments, in my view, uh, have to create uh, enabling conditions in order for farmers to be able to cope with 
environmental challenges as much as possible. And every year is not the same. You have to really change. Uh, I mean, it's not just Canada or the Atlantic. Look at California, right? Look at here, like in Florida. I mean, you're with oranges and you can see that really farmers around the Western world are struggling to cope with the effects of climate change. Right. And that's a, that's an ongoing issue and it's not going to disappear. So on the one side, you need to make sure that the science is there to understand the risks. And on the other side, you want to make sure that farmers are properly supported in order to cope with new risks that are, that are basically coming. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting that the, re the industry is referring to themselves as, as fish farmers, you know, which, <laughs> which is just another extension of the agricultural sector, obviously. So that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. There's been uh, some uh, growing uh, consumer interest, obviously, in organically grown foods. Uh, how big is this segment in the market right now in Atlantic Canada? And where do you see this demand for organically grown food going? I don't think, uh, I mean... It's still, if you talk to, uh, you know, Galen Weston or uh, Michael Medline from Sobeys, uh, they won't disclose you any numbers, but <laughs> it's not, it's not a huge market. No. You know, it's, a, it's still a marginal market. And, uh, you know, I, I, and I know that a lot of people are, are saying, well, I'll buy organic as much as I can. I'll buy local as much as I can. The reality is that they don't. I mean... Mm. You'll survey people, we survey people, and they're always going to talk about motherhood and apple pie. But at the end of the day, when you show up at the grocery store, for most people, life kicks in. You have 10 minutes to, sh to grocery shop. You you're on a tight budget. Uh, you you're going to pick the best deal possible. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the local organic paradox. That's, right. that's, and, and we have to be real. We have to be honest with ourselves. Uh, I think from an, for organics, where the potential is for us is exports. Uh, and I don't think we've done enough. And I actually think like when you go outside of Canada, when you talk, when I talk to my colleagues at the University of South Florida right here, they think of Canada as this pure, safe place. <laughs> Those are attributes you want for organics. Yeah. I mean, seriously. So all we would need is to scale up operations like, like we've seen elsewhere around the world. And I think there's some great potential to sell products, commodities at a premium. Uh, I th for, especially for the Atlantic or for the Atlantic region. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think one of the challenges with organically grown uh, products is that people don't trust that they are organically grown. Uh, is there is there any sort of sort of third party verification process in Canada for organically grown food? Product. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, there was, uh, I mean, Canada from a regulatory perspective was a mess for a long time, but now, uh, they've actually, um, they've, they've created a certification program, uh, one standard for Canada, which really has clarified a lot of things. And that happened a few years ago. So there's some regulatory clarity, but you're right, Don, Don I mean, Food fraud is a huge problem. Adulteration mm -hmm. is one. Counterfeiting is the other. But the other one, which now we're talking about, is misrepresentation. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the, Yes, there is a lot of product uh, that are sold as organic and they're not. There are a lot of products sold as local products and they're imported. I mean, that it does happen. Actually, in fact, right now, our lab 
we're working with uh, with McGill University in Montreal on a project of food fraud. It's a multi-million dollar project. Hopefully, it'll get funded, but it's a serious issue. And as uh, if if we can monitor food fraud more effectively, I think uh, I think consumers will want to invest more, will want to pay more for organics. But for now, you're right. A lot of people are saying, "Well, is it really? How do I know for sure?" And right now, the traceability programs we have is just not efficient enough. Right. I have to tell you a funny story. When I was doing my MBA at Dow a long time ago, <laughs> I had a policy course and, and we had to do a blue, blue sky project. And so uh, our group decided that we we're going to do beef farm and we're going to, you know, oh, look yeah? at the creation of a, you know, scale, a big scale beef farm. And uh, the funny thing that we found out, at least at that time, it's probably changed now, is that you could call beef Western beef as long as it was sold west of the store. <laughs> that's funny west of the store sure it's probably changed hopefully but anyway that's, that's, anyway there you go but the, the the nomenclature like you're seeing in plant base right now don i mean when i talk so i, I uh, before covid i was actually in front of about 700 cattle producers in red deer alberta hmm. and i was talking about plant-based plant-based products and, and and a guy with his cowboy hat came up to the mic and said listen sylvain beef is plant-based what are you talking about <laughs> and he's he's right i mean he was right so yeah. the nomenclature right. in food has always been a work in progress <laughs> <laughs> that's a good example too uh there there have been a, a number of initiatives to grow certain vegetables year-round in our region i'm thinking tomatoes i guess but how realistic is it for our region to become more self-sufficient in the production of such vegetables on a year-round basis you kind of in, in, inferred that earlier but i'd like to talk about that a little bit more yeah so uh again uh what we're seeing in other provinces and i would probably uh use quebec ontario alberta as examples uh they're they're just focusing on on uh, greenhouses and vertical farms and uh and frankly uh that's that's the way to go we we have to deal with the fact that agriculture takes a break six months a year in our region and uh but you can't do it without money i mean these are highly <laughs> The, the, these are capital intensive projects. And mm. so what we've seen in other parts of the country uh, are investors, private investors putting money, but also uh, governments uh, have played a, a leadership role, not necessarily uh, giving grants. Uh, they've guaranteed loans in some cases, but they've, they've facilitated discussions about, you know, the future about, because it's not producing more is, Probably the easy part, the hard part is to figure out a market for these things hmm. over the long term. So I'll give you an example of Quebec with strawberries. Quebec, for the longest time, I grew up in Quebec when I was a kid, and you thought about local strawberries in June and July. That's it. That's it. And after that, you basically bought strawberries that didn't taste anything from California hmm. and Arizona. That's basically how it worked. But now they're hardwiring the consumer to think about Quebec strawberries 12 months a year. So they're producing strawberries 12 months a year hmm. with stable prices all around the year wow. with highly tasting strawberries. And, and, and these strawberries are sold right now. We're in February right now. And you can get Quebec grown strawberries that taste good 
at Costco and different places because they've, they've, they've figured out a strategy. And I think this is something we need in our region, a strategy. And, and, and if, if I can convey one message to our Atlantic friends uh, through your podcast is that I think provinces in agriculture would need to work together more. I think there's something that we can learn from each other and because and, again, we're a small population. We're we're not even well, we're three not even three million people, and we and our territory is vast. So there's a lot of things we can do, but I think we need to coordinate things a little bit better amongst region, especially when it comes to produce, for example, yes. and livestock. Well, you know, I, I'm intrigued by the idea of uh, having year-round uh, food products. I, we have some examples. I think there's a company in Troll. I forget what it's called. New Leaf or True Leaf or something like that. So True Leaf is yeah. <laughs> a success story that came out of Bible Hill. Okay. Yeah. But it, it, we lost them. So they went to Guelph. They moved to Guelph. And oh, now, okay. but listen to this, Don. This is great stuff. I mean, they actually decided to, um, so when they were in Guelph, they needed more money to build more vertical farms across the country because they want to support clients like Sobeys and Loblaws, national grocers. Right. So they needed to build a plant in Calgary and New Brunswick. And I think in New Brunswick, it's being built right now, but I can't tell you where it's being built right now. But that partnership or the project is happening as a result of the partnership between, between True Leaf and McCain. Oh, there we go. And yeah, and uh, it was announced, I think it was last year. That partnership is awesome. And I think more needs to happen. And so, and, and the way it happened, it's because OMAFRA in Ontario facilitated discussions between all these players. Not zero money from the public sector or from governments actually came into that project. It's all private and they're building capacity across the country. Well, that's really exciting. And I think, you know, we need to kind of look at those opportunities in this region for sure. Oh, yeah. There have been, there has been really considerable food inflation in the last 12 months, as you know. Obviously, supply chain problems are playing some role in, in food inf 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 inflation. But are there other factors contributing to rising cost of food? Uh, well, commodity prices are up. Uh, when you look at the price of soybean, for example, it's over, you know, $1,500 a ton. So that's, a, that's mm -hmm. a record high. I mean, you, you're seeing, you're seeing really, uh, commodities. So input costs, if you're producing food, you're spending more to get mm -hmm. your, you know, whatever you need, canola, wheat. So that's a contributing factor. Uh, but the supply chain issue is a real one across the globe. Uh, whether you're moving products on water or on land, you're paying more. Uh, right. Just to, so just to truck uh, citrus fruits from California from Florida here to Canada, it's costing you twenty five percent to one hundred percent more compared to last month. Wow. Okay, right. so and and our region, the Atlantic, is unbelievably challenging to service because of how isolated we are. I mean, let's face it, we are very, we have the port, but a lot of the food is trucked into Quebec and Ontario to service the Atlantic. And that's why a lot of our products is typically not as fresh. And, and frankly, the quality is not great, which is why I think producing more of our own produce would be a, would be a godsend because the freshness, and I've lived in many parts of the country, the freshness is just not there. 
right. and it shows. Yeah. So that's really the challenge right now. And I know people are hearing a lot about supply chain problems. As soon as it, it, it takes more time to move things around, it will cost you more. Think of the right. fuel, think of the time of the trucker, think of right. you know, all the things that we've seen in recent years. And the global economy is just not in sync right now. So yeah. you got Asia uh, going through uh, COVID in certain ways, dealing with COVID in certain ways. Uh, North America, I mean, just in North America, you go from one state to another, they're dealing with COVID very differently. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, 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 I think it's, we're in this for a while. I think it's going to take a while before we get out of this and that supply chains are starting to work well again. Yeah, so that kind of leads me to the next question about your expectation of food costs looking ahead this year. Do you think they will begin to moderate or, or are we likely to be in this for longer than most people expect? Uh, so uh, when you look at our forecasts in December, uh, so we, we forecast that food prices will go up by anywhere between 5 to 7% this year. Hmm. So the food inflation rate in January was at 6.5%. Okay. For Canada Hmm. in the, in the Atlantic. Now I looked at, I tried to come up with an average. It's anywhere between 6.5 to 7% right now in the Atlantic. It's higher than the average. Okay. Hmm. So that's what we're expecting. And no, we're not expecting things to calm down anytime soon. We are expecting prices to continue to rise. The other concern that I have, to be honest, Don, is this rift between grocers and, and food manufacturers. Uh, I don't know if you saw in the news this week, mm-hmm. but uh, Frito-Lay <laughs> has decided to stop selling to Loblaw. Uh, as you know, as a manufacturer, you will sell and then you have uh, suggested retail prices for your product. That's how yep. it works. Yep. Uh, now... Their Loblaws is refusing to honor those retail prices and is refusing also to pay Frito-Lay more, which is owned by PepsiCo Canada. And so there's a stop sell there. And based on conversations I've had this week with other uh, people in the industry, this is across the board. This is happening with other grocers. It's happening with other manufacturers. And I'm including Kraft Heinz, Unilever, Procter Gamble, it's, it's across the board. So I'm very worried about what's going on because, I mean, the food manufacturing sector in Canada is, is one of the largest manufacturing sectors we have. It's second to automotive. Mm. So, yeah. so, that, so there, there's, a, there's a bit of a war going on within the supply chain. And at the end of the day, it will impact food prices. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. We may see more private labels uh, or... Or we could actually start seeing CPG companies selling food to us directly, you know? And, and I know that, that, that companies like PepsiCo Canada have actually started to think about the B2C space more so than before since the start of COVID. The B2B space, they've mastered very well, but we, because of the problems they're, they're facing with grocers, they're looking at B2C more and more as an option. Well, I don't know what we're going to do without storm chips down in. I know. I, really I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Finally, uh, just you- a, a quick. Uh, I'd like to get your outlook uh, about uh, the food sector in Atlantic Canada. What, what's what do you feel the future is for for this sector? 
So to be really honest with you, I think we have great people working in the sector, but we need two things. One, public leadership. And we're starting to see that, at least in Nova Scotia, uh, we need more of that leadership guidance mm-hmm. in terms of a, a vision for the sector. And, and, and we need governments that don't overlook the sector. It needs to embrace agri-food. And, and again, from farm to store, that's one thing. Secondly, I think, I think the sector is in dire need of inspiration. Uh, I mean, I tr- like, well, I don't travel as much because of COVID, but when you look at other places in Canada or even in the United States, my goodness, there's some really great stuff going on there. And we can get inspired by some of the projects that are happening elsewhere and kind of replicate some of that stuff in our own backyard, uh, I think. Uh, there's, there's, like I said, there's tremendous opportunity in the Atlantic. We can do a lot of different things. We can do some great damages, export our know-how elsewhere around the world. We just need leadership and some inspiration. And if we get both, I think we can. it can go a long way. Well, Savannah, it's been a great pleasure having you on the Insights Podcast. You, you've achieved exactly what we try to do with this uh, program, you know, inform and educate and, and, and advocate for the kind of changes that we need to make our, our region more prosperous and successful. So uh, mission accomplished. Really a, a great pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much. Well, thank you for inviting me, Don. You take care. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legier helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week. This episode of Insights was brought to you by MNP Digital, a firm that guides, protects, and empowers organizations along their digital journey. See how at mnpdigital.ca.